This is the Moraine Valley Library Podcast. I'm Troy. I'm Tish. And today we're going to talk about the upcoming one book program on Isaac Asimov's iRobot. We are joined today by two faculty members. Hi, I'm Carrie Millsap Spears, and I teach composition and literature. And I am Amani Wazwaz, and I also teach composition and literature. Thank you both for being here. Just as a quick overview, I want to read um, a little bit about the book iRobot because I think it's it's a historic piece and um, really is foundational in the in science fiction. So this is from the Encyclopedia Britannica page. I thought they did a very nice job. iRobot is a collection of nine short stories by science fiction writer Isaac Asimov that imagines the development of the positronic brain and the development of robots, and it wrestles with the moral implications of that technology. The stories originally appeared in science fiction magazines between 1940 and 1950. In the year 1950, they were first published together in book form. Asimov's treatment of robots as being programmed with ethics rather than as marauding metal monsters was greatly influential in the development of science fiction over the 20th century. So it seems like an important book for us to pick for this one book as technology is more and more intertwined in our lives. So although this book is really focused on technology and robots and the creation of robotics, Amani, if you could talk a little bit about why this book is significant in helping us understand ourselves actually more than understanding robots. All right, Tish, uh, this uh, selection for this year is extraordinary and it's very, very significant for the very reason uh, that you mentioned. I'll backtrack just a little bit and say that in the 1940s when Isaac Asimov came up with the idea of robots this idea these stories were earth-shattering they were they were new now granted much much earlier uh mary shelley and frankenstein had come up with this phenomenal idea of humans creating a creature that thinks on it on its own and she delved very deeply into the psychology of this creation that became very humanistic and very humanoid we have a lapse of years and years and in the 1940s Isaac Asimov comes up with these incredible and very thought-provoking stories And what I love about the fact that Moraine is going to be reading these is this is a very thought-centered collection of stories. What's beautiful about Asimov is that in creating these stories, it helps us to understand ourselves. Who are we? We have been developing uh, technologies But the idea of like the thinking being, the thinking robot is something very significant. And Asimov starts to have us try to understand our own ways of thinking. For example, in putting us in these situations where we're interacting with robots, he allows us to understand, well, why is it that we develop attachments to such robots? And we see, we see that it's our humanity. It's the way that we interact with robots. We assign them particular traits and we make memories with them. And it's for the very fact that we create memories and we interact with them that we come to care for them. We come to 
become attached to them. We become attached to our very own creations. And he's asking us to think of that and to think of what is it that makes a social human being? Just because I, a child, a teenager, a young adult is interacting with technology and communicating with it, does that make that human being, that child, that teenager less social, less of a social being? Does it take two human beings interacting with one another to create a fully social, fully functioning human being? Is technology bad? He's opening our hearts and souls to ask these questions. You get characters who are terrified of robots. Uh, robots are not good. They're not good creatures. Um, they don't have a built-in sense of ethics or, or morals. So Asimov is also pushing us to ask that maybe what we should do is take a look at our ways of thinking and what is it that makes us uncomfortable with these robots? Is it actually them or is it actually us that we should be terrified of? Uh, something that is fascinating about um, Asimov is the role of spirituality and religion as well too. You get his robots acting so much like us acting so much like human beings, we as humans refuse to accept that we are just uh, skin, bones, and muscle, that we're workers. Oh no, there's gotta be a greater reason to our existence. And so when you have Asimov's robots thinking this way, you know, this is us. It's Asimov trying to have us understand ourselves on a deeper level, that we want, we want to assign a greater purpose to our existence. So he's having us ask these questions, you know, how is it that we reason the purpose of our being into our world? It's like, it's as if Asimov is telling us, oh, it's these robots who are thinking that way, but we know. We know this is us, and here we are human beings thinking, oh my God, we created something and we've lost control. We should have been the gods, but oh my God, they've developed a different divinity, a different uh, divine beings for them to bow down to and not us. Oh, so we have become the jealous gods, in, in other words. In a way, I see Asimov poking fun at human beings. How arrogant we are. The robots ultimately are following the rules that are embedded within their robotic brains. And the rules go uh, like this. Um, the rules are as follows. Rule number one, you should not hurt any human being. And rule number number two, you should obey orders unless uh, it violates rule number one. And rule number three, you should not get hurt as a robot unless it violates rule number one and rule number three. And so we're embedding these rules in the minds of these robots so that we human beings are going to be protected. But wait a second, are our rules of morality are they absolute truths? The philosophical rules that we stand by, 
Are they absolutes or are they subject to context? Are they subject to a variety of different conflicts and a variety of different settings? And Asimov, and Asimov, in a very genius fashion, shows, oh my God, there's no absolutes. Sometimes in order to obey rule number two, you got to somehow violate number one and number three. And so what we see is that Robots at times, they cannot function. They just sit there and then they shake and they twirl around and they dance in circles because they don't know what to do. And I think this is like a very important conversation that Asimov brings to the table. Um, he brings in beautiful uh, ideas that later on Stephen Hawking would um, Stephen Hawking later on would say, like, be careful, you know, artificial intelligence may take over, may take over, you know. And this is what Asimov also, you know, he brings in people's fears. But as I mentioned earlier, it's more like how, how dare us, because we want to stay in control. Well, do you think, how do you think that then translates back to Frankenstein? You bring that up that, okay. you know, Shelley brings this up first. Right. So... How do you, what kind of connection do you make? Okay, what I make uh, between, between the two, Carrie, is the following. For Mary Shelley, she humanizes the monster very deeply. And, and the monster becomes a human being. And the monster becomes so incredibly lonely and lonesome and feels, feels such depth of rejection from Dr. Frankenstein. And when I've taught like Frankenstein, and I've taught it in a religion and literature class, and um, and it was a multi-faith, multicultural uh, religion and literature class. And what I see between both of them is for, for the monster, for Mary Shelley's uh, monster, you have forsaken me. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you have created me and you have left me alone. And and here I am, you know, I, I am frail. I, I am I have I have my own vulnerabilities and you have left me and you have discarded me. And 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 how dare you? And it speaks to Mary Shelley beautifully speaks to how we create and we let go of our creations. We are not responsible. We are not responsible for taking care of what we have let, what we have created. And we see that in here. We see that in here as well too, where I've created something and how dare it not respond to the way that I envisioned it. You know, it's almost like a dysfunctional parent-child relationship. It's yeah. almost like that. It's almost like um, when I think of spirituality and, and religion, it's almost like the fall from grace. You know, human beings are created. They're expected to be perfect. And then when they're not, uh, they're cast down, you know, from from the Garden of Eve, uh, from oh, Garden of uh, <laughs> Eve, oh my goodness, from the Garden of Eden. And <laughs> we, we see that here, like, you know, it's almost carry like we human beings are the robots. You oh, know? I 100% I agree with you. Yeah. And when I read the first chapter of iRobot, all yes. I could, all I could imagine was the creature, the yeah. creature in volume two of Frankenstein and how 
in the novel he has a voice and if you watch the the James Whale yes. uh, movies uh, right. Frankenstein the Bride of Frankenstein and all the other you know monster films of that era the creature doesn't have a voice and he's very he's very similar to Robbie the robot yes. right he exhibits right. emotions he can emote but he can't speak but yeah. one of my favorite passages in the ro- with with um, when the creature meets Victor in the countryside and he's begging him for a mate he says um, have I not suffered enough that you seek to increase my misery life although it may be an accumulation of anguish is dear to me and I will defend it remember thou has made me more powerful than thyself my height is superior to thine my joints more supple but I will not be tempted to set myself in opposition to thee I am thy creature and I will be even mild and docile to my natural Lord and King, if thou will perform thy part, which thou owest me. And I, I, it reminded me so much of when Robbie is cast out of the family, right? So the creature, if for those of you who haven't read Frankenstein, the creature lives next door to a family in volume two, and he is essentially cast out from the family when they see him. And um, no one obviously goes after the creature. No one helps the creature. But in, in I, Robot, in the chapter Robbie, the little girl Gloria says to her mother, he was not a machine, screamed Gloria, he was a person just like you and me, and he was my friend. I mean, if you would have some, I think Asimov is giving, in my opinion, and I, you know, I'm a little, I don't know, I'm more team creature than team Victor because I think Victor, you know, does everything wrong in, in Frankenstein, but that's another conversation. Uh, but I think Asimov gives the creature a little bit of a voice in in Robbie, and um, I just loved that chapter. It was probably my favorite in in iRobot. I don't know. Did you have another one that you liked? I I loved the Robbie chapter as well too. I love the innocence of Robbie. I loved so much that uh, Robbie is, is such a sweetheart, and that he wants to listen to Cinderella oh, yes. over <laughs> and over and over again. Yes. I I love that as well, um, Carrie. I love the Robbie chapter. I also loved reason tremendously and i loved the liar chapter a lot i i loved it because the robot basically lies to the human beings and tells them what's on their minds and their wishes and uh, human beings at first are like oh my god they get their wishes come true and then when they realize the robot has just been lying to them they cannot handle it so it's like, you know, <laughs> the robot. Okay, I want to tell you that robot in there, I think his name was Her- Herbie, right? Mm-hmm, I think so. Okay, Herbie. I, okay, I loved Robbie. I loved Herbie as well, too. And I'm like, oh my God, how dare you do that to Herbie? You know, <laughs> he was being good. He was being kind and compassionate and telling you your dreams. How dare you do that to him? But again, again, you know what? In our world, again, you know, Asimov is telling us, what does it mean to be a compassionate human being? What does it mean to be a good human being? Herbie was good. Herbie was compassionate, maybe too compassionate. Do you think, you know, Asimov gives them these great names, Robbie and Herbie, and these, like, uh, very 
childlike names in and some cutie, way, and yes. they're cute, yeah, cutie, cutie. and they're um, they're just they they have these sort of elements to them that made me really think about you know Rousseau and the idea of you know childhood and the fact that people are born good and society right. makes them evil, and I think that that kind of plays out in iRobot in a lot of these different stories and. I study a lot of popular culture, as you know, yes. Yes. and I'm a big um, science fiction fan, and right. I'm a, I, I guess if one could be a scholar of, scar- of Star Trek, I, I would be one of those. You and, certainly are, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and in, in Star Trek The Next Generation, there are a pair of um, android brothers, quote unquote brothers, and they're played by uh, Brent Spiner, and the characters are Data and his brother Lore. And they're actually sort of like the the twin and the evil twin sort of incarnate in in these stories. And one actually dresses in black. I mean, it's just it's very uh, on the nose as far as that goes. But the positronic brain um, is in part of their makeup and they were created to um, be better than humans. Data has no emotions. He can feel no emotions, but lore can feel all the emotions. And so that's where they're conflict kind of comes throughout the 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 series and i just find it kind of interesting they even actually mention asimov in some of the episodes and the discussion of these androids and in one episode in particular the androids are are data is put on trial to find out if in in fact he's real enough to be sentient right this idea of sentient beings can we create them and um that kind of, again, I think Asimov starts those conversations that are, are pretty typical in popular culture today. I mean, everything from Battlestar Galactica and the Cylons to, um, you know, Star Trek and the different incarnations of technology through that. But I mean, you even have that in in more, you know, realistic stories with Westworld as being another example those androids are created for entertainment, you know, so people just go to Westworld to be entertained by these, these, you know, uh, proto humans, they look like humans, they feel like humans, but they're not. And so I think that popular culture is kind of taking it into a whole other realm in some ways that we're even farther than what he envisions in this particular set of short stories. But I wanted to ask you one other thing. Um, you mentioned, um, religion in a in a couple of ways and in this idea of taking the rule of god and do you do you think that the the robots see it that way or that just the creators see it that way do i think the robots see it see it that way or yeah do they see that is the rule sort of being religious in nature or do you think they're just sort of like guidelines you know that they follow okay concerning the rules i think they just follow it. They they just follow the, the rules and they don't see it as a kind of religion. But in reasoning, which is one of my favorite stories here, what happens is um, Cutie becomes a thinking, reasoning robot and he starts thinking of his higher purpose and his place of existence. So when he himself starts asking about his place of existence in the world, he refuses to believe that he is there to replace a worker and be just a worker and that human beings are just going to go away. And so he even says, you know, I realized that once I started thinking 
that there is more to me and my place of existence. So what it's very interesting that Asimov has the robot thinking this way, but I think what Asimov is trying to say is we think this way. We human beings are meaning makers. We want a higher purpose. And I think he, he continues this conversation that many, many, many writers and thinkers have been thinking about for the, for the longest time. But I think Harry, his genius is, he, instead of human beings talking about this in a Shakespearean play, you know, um, in, in a regular novel or short story, he has our mirror reflections, which are our robots thinking, thinking like us. And this is what I find fascinating. So in, term, in terms of, of the rules, I think it's been embedded in, into, into them, but in particularly like the reason, the reason chapter, they start to switch it around. And oh, you know, we, we are the better ones. We are, the, we are the superior beings and thou shall not hurt. Well, I'm smarter than you. I, the robot, am smarter than you and I will not hurt you. I will do whatever I can to, to not to hurt you. I'll control you. Right. I mean, I think that that's sort of like the the core of these things. You take these things to a certain extreme and then right. you have the sort of aftermath of that extreme sort of um, positioning in, in these kind of narratives. So to go back to my example of these androids, the same thing happens with these android brothers. One decides that he will become you know, the ruler of everyone because he's the smartest. I mean, he has the fastest thinking brain and he can do all these things and he's superhuman in his right. strength and all of that. But it's it comes from a position not of wanting to help other people. It's just to want to rule them. And so I think that kind of definitely speaks to to what you're saying. And I wanted to mention that you also bring up the idea that that popular culture gives us these mirrors that are different from, you know, reading Shakespeare or, you know, any other very difficult texts. And I think some people, and I've met, I've met other, you know, faculty from other places and other disciplines who sometimes think pop culture is not necessarily a way to talk about things at a, in a college or in a university level setting. But I would, I would say the, the opposite is true. It gives us a way into a conversation. It kind of puts our foot into a door, into a big conversation. So if I were to bring iRobot into my classroom and we would read the first chapter of Robbie, uh, spoiler alert, that'll probably happen in the fall, um, uh, <laughs> then I will, I will then, you know, maybe pair that with a with a discussion of maybe James Whale's version of the creature um, and, and kind of have us start thinking about that before, you know, before someone would even attempt to read Frankenstein, for example, because it's sort of far removed from us. So can you think of any other examples that you would you would pair um, iRobot yes. with? Okay, um, what I thought of uh, was um, I would pair up iRobot with uh, the movie Artificial Intelligence, because in Artificial Intelligence, uh, the little boy robot starts to become a feeling being and starts to hunger for uh, the sense of the mother so deeply that he, oh, okay, okay, spoiler alert, I apologize. Um, he even starts to hallucinate a mother, a mother figure in the end. And that's Spielberg's AI, yes, right? Yeah, yeah that's Spielberg's uh, art artificial intelligence. 
I thought of pairing this book for my COM 101. Either I am going to be teaching this in COM 101 and COM 102 as well, too. I thought of that and, and Spielberg's um, art, uh, artificial intelligence. And I also thought of Frankenstein as well, too, because he is like such a very humanized uh, monster. So I thought of those two, and um, I also thought of pairing this with writings by Stephen Hawking, where he, uh, where he warns you know, against uh, artificial intelligence taking over humanity. Another one is a documentary called Prophets of Doom, where uh, in, in a certain part, uh, they warn against against robots taking over us. Well, I mean, I think it's kind of funny because we have all these warnings against these things. You know, we shouldn't have artificial intelligence and robots are going to take over. Um, I often show a commercial in my COM 101 class to teach um, the straw man fallacy, and it's an old Dodge Charger commercial. And it actually says, um, we've seen that movie, robots are going to harvest our bodies or whatever. And it's just basically talking about if you have too much technology in your car, your car is going to break down. So that's sort of the metaphor used in the commercial. And so we have all these warnings against these things, but yet we still do it. So I went to Lowe's and there are no cashiers. I have to self-check out everything. And so this automation of work, I think, is something else that you brought up. And I think that also is present in Frankenstein, too, this idea that we can create beings to take on the jobs that right. we don't want to do. So yeah. I can give you an example from another science fiction series that I'm obsessed with, with is Battlestar Galactica. And it's the rebooted one, not the one from the 70s where they were way too groovy. <laughs> um, but the the rebooted one, they actually have, they built all these machines to take on their jobs. And so essentially the machines become more human, more fully realized, and they think themselves perfect. And they actually create their own religion to go back to that. You know, So they do everything that Imani said earlier. Um, and then they come back to, to basically wreak havoc on their creators you know, out of revenge. And it's sort of this idea that they take on all of the work that no one else wants to do, and they have to do all that work. So do you see sort of this novel or this collection of essays in iRobot as sort of a warning against um, automation or um, technology and, you know, being come more cyborgs, you know? <laughs> I mean, I'm wearing a Fitbit. I have a phone in my pocket that right. connects to my car when I get into it. So what am I now, right? Right. I really found the last two stories yes. so compelling, right? The, right. you know, ans asking the question, could you tell the difference between a human yes. and a robot? Yeah. And then also, you know, like what is what is work? What is the economy? And you know, what if our technology just decides for us that we aren't needed in the economy? And and yeah. I mean, I think those are key themes that we wanted to talk about um, over this next year, which is part of the selection of this book. I don't know what that that means for our students. What kind of work they what will be available in the future? Right. Um, I don't know. I think it's an interesting question, but I, I do think that's something else that's brought up in this in this novel. Okay, for me, um, this has begun the conversation, and I look forward so much to August, September, October, November, all of like. So I'm really looking forward to how this is going to branch out. Well, I'm really looking forward to the, the discussion that we could have between humanities faculty and sort of STEM faculty about, about this kind of story, about this sort of 
discussion of technology and humanity, because I think that in the humanities, we've been fighting for our existence lately, that we are relevant, that we have a place in the world and that, you know, yes, you can get a great job studying engineering. And I, you know, I love engineers. My son's going to be an engineer. That's not the, the case. But I think we also have to discuss the fact that at the core of engineering, there are human um, discussions, there are human feelings, there are human, you know, there are things that are we need to, to be aware of. And so I think it'd be, I'm most excited to, to talk about the sort of intersection between the humanities and, and STEM in, in stories like this. So I think that would be fun. Uh, thank you both so much. Um, <laughs> I am super excited about just thinking about all of these things for a while um, over the next year and have some great ideas and great questions that I can't wait to like pose to you later and to all of our other faculty and our students. So really enjoyed this conversation. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you so much.